welcome. Thank you. We're glad that y'all are here. We have uh, Claire Fearman, Katie White, and y'all are with a Center for Eating Disorders out of Birmingham, Alabama. Did I get that right? You got it yeah. right. Perfect. So what do y'all do for them, that organization? Give us the lowdown on that. I am the Director of Adolescent Services. So I work with families and teenagers and schools and help coordinate their care, plus run groups and see clients. Okay. And make sure that everybody is happy as you can be in treatment or as content as you can be, deal with any problems, answer any questions. So it's a bit may have. administrative, but also clinical day to day? Yes, definitely more clinical than administrative. That's more of my jam is to be with the people. Okay. So do you supervise the clinicians at all? I do to some degree, especially if they have problems with adolescents or they have questions about families or schools, do some mentoring with that. So I, I assume there might be two sides of the house. There's the adolescent side and the adult side. Is that correct? And it's all women. It's all women. And yes, there's an adolescent side and an adult side, but for the most part, they're together for groups. Occasionally we'll separate them. Interesting. They're together for meals. Interesting. Very interesting. I, I want to come back to that, but Claire, I want you to be able to introduce yourself. Claire Fearman, addiction and eating disorder expert. I'm just kidding. I'm not <laughs> trying to put that on you. Um, and you should come back to that because that was a new thing for me to see adolescents and adults together. It's super interesting. So I'm technically COO, which when it was offered to me, I Googled the job description because I was like, I'm unsure of what this does. And what it turns out to be is a jack of all trades. So That's right. I have 14 years clinical experience, but I remember probably three years into being a therapist, my greatest mentor said, you have the brain of an entrepreneur, don't let it go. And so then I learned that that meant that I like to have ideas and make new things and make things better and support all the people that do it. And so this landed in my lap about six months ago and I get to do all the things with all the people. Six months. Yeah. So you're like the new kid on the block on the team, it sounds like. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Very. And so you're administrative and clinical as well, kind of similar to Katie. Yes. In terms yes. of it's a pretty integrated team. It's an incredibly integrated team because most of us have a clinical background, whether it's therapeutic or dietary. And so we're incredibly credentialed, but that doesn't mean someone's not going to help plant the garden or take the clients to get ice cream. We get to be a part of everything we want to be a part of. Every staff member knows every client. Interesting. And how many clients approximately do you guys have in treatment at any given time? And, and how many individuals and families are you treating a year? We have anywhere between probably 10 to 14 Okay. at any time. Beginning of the school year, when people go back to school and go back to college, census drops a little to around 8 to 10. Um, and families are very much a part of the treatment, especially if they are younger. So we try and get families to come in once a week or once every other week. We definitely are communicating with them weekly. We have monthly family groups, and uh, we remain open to families through email calls and whatever the family chooses. Yeah. So this is going to sound like an elementary question, but I think it's worthy of asking. We can kind of use this as a maybe starting off point, but just from y'all's perspective, not from a clinical manuscript, but what are eating disorders? That's a great question. Do you want to start or do you want me to? Go for it. 
Okay, so I'll do the new kid on the block. So for me and my just experiences being a human or like a woman in the United States, an eating disorder is some sort of distorted relationship around food and body image that causes pain. And if it not only causes pain, but typically gets in the way of living a functioning life. It could harm relationships, harm work, um, not only harm the body, but spiritual self as well. Hmm. So it's a pretty big scope of pain. Hmm. So I think a lot of folks, when they think about eating disorders, they think about bulimia, they think about anorexia, but what y'all are also talking about is this sort of another new emerging paradigm that at least I'm familiar with, sort of mostly known as disordered eating or, or having a maladaptive relationship with food. Is that a good way to describe it? Mm-hmm. It is. Interesting. So for most of the patients that come to a Center for Eating Disorders out of Birmingham, what are they experiencing? Is it is it the more acute eating disorders that we're traditionally and historically familiar with, or is it really mostly disordered eating that maybe can spectrum in any one of those manifestations of an eating disorder? I fall in the camp of more that it's a spectrum yeah. and eating disorders in general should be a spectrum diagnostically. Yeah. But then, uh, you know, I'm not on the DSM committee, so they didn't <laughs> ask me. That's just my opinion. Um, they definitely have specific diagnoses according to the DSM, but that's really for insurance. But at the end of the day, you're treating a person in pain and you're treating a person that's grasping at straws to cope with something in their life that isn't right. And they're just having to use food or exercise in some form or fashion, and they feel that it's working for them until it's not. So our job is to help them explore, go on this journey of finding out there's something out there that works better. It's going to feel really different, and it's going to be really hard, but you can, and you will find something if you put in the work and you have the courage to show up every single day. And you don't have to want recovery every single day. And you probably won't recovery every day. But let's go in and be like, why don't I want recovery today? Why do I still want to have this tortured relationship with food and not look at something else that's torturing me? Yeah, it sounds really familiar, right? Yes. When you think about like a recovery paradigm, mm-hmm. like it, it sounds familiar in terms of your relationship with, you know, not every day might you want to be clean and sober right. from an addiction perspective. Um, can, can either of you speak on, what the pain looks like for a patient? I think we can both talk yeah. about that. Um, will you start, adolescent guru? Yes. For an adolescent, the pain is, this is their best friend. This is what gives them confidence. This is what makes them feel like they can go to school and speak in class. They believe this is why they have good grades. They believe this is mm. why they're in the band or the sports team or whatever. Um, it's their confidence. It's their confidant. And you rip that away from them. And it's a huge loss. And it's absolutely terrifying because not only are they navigating who they are developmentally as adolescents, but now they have to navigate it without their best friend, without mm. their number one coping skill. Mm. And, you know, to reason with an adolescent and to convince them there's something bigger and better out there is really difficult to do. Of course. Um, and, I mean, it's sad. And, it can be heartbreaking, but gosh, it's so rewarding. Do you mind if I, I should tell the story that I told you in the car? Please. Um, I'm having dinner tonight with a former adolescent client. She's 24 now. And one day she just, it was so hard for her buying into recovery and that life was bigger without her eating disorder. 
was completely torture every single day. And her dietitian and I sat her down and talked to her about it's not working. She was mad because we wouldn't let her exercise and she couldn't go to yoga and she couldn't go for a walk. And over-exercising was such a huge part of her disorder. And this is someone that thought that on 500 calories a day, she could win an Olympic gold medal in a triathlon and then turn around and win the CrossFit Games all in the same year. Um, and to convince her that why that wasn't possible was like pulling teeth. And so she was really upset I was going to the gym. And she was really upset that the dietitian was going for a walk. And she said, well, that's just not fair. That's not fair. And why can't because you take she couldn't. Me? She couldn't. Oh, you see. can't. Right. You can't. You have not eaten all day long. Wow. You cannot go to the gym with me. However, when you fully recover, I will glad you, gladly take you to the gym with me. So, and she goes, well, what if I'm like 40? And I said, well, then I'll buy you a beer after. So sure enough, tonight she and I are going to go work out and going to get burgers. That's so, terrific. That's, yeah. 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 Claire, what do you think? What's the pain look like? I'm just curious because I think for people that are listening to this show, um, mostly friends and family, <laughs> I would say that or those that might or might not be familiar with with disordered eating broadly that we're probably most familiar with what that looks like with addiction, right? With a needle in your arm or, you know, an inability for your brother, or your dad, or your loved one to stop drinking. You know, we get we have these classic ideas of addiction. And, and I would argue and suggest that many of us, myself included, at any given time have probably struggled with our relationship with food and our relationship with our bodies and how we look. So I'm just curious, based on your six months at a Center for Eating Disorders, sort of your fresh perspective and your rich clinical um, expertise, how that's kind of, how that manifests in your mind. I think it's a great question. And as I was doing research before coming up here, I found out that only 2% of clinicians will openly say they treat eating disorders. That's a really small number, especially coming off of what you just said. Most people For sure. experience discomfort in their body at some point in their lives. So the pain that I've seen, and I've specialized in treating women for the majority of my time as a clinician. And so I've even, I've had the opportunity to sit with women in a lot of that discomfort. But the biggest difference in I'm uncomfortable with my body, it changed after I had a baby, kind of that like normal trajectory versus an eating disorder, is they cannot fathom life without this piece, without this part. Katie does a great exercise with people not struggling with an eating disorder. And she says, imagine something you can't live without. So that might be family, uh, God, Starbucks coffee, whatever it is. And imagine that. And Im imagine how good that makes you feel. Well, now I'm taking it. And you can never have that again. Figure out how to cope. Good luck. Sure. That's what it is when a client steps into eating disorder. They believe we're about to take away the, the thing that they hold dear. That's incredibly frightening. So it's not lost to me. And I tell our patients all the time, I'm like, I can't believe y'all show up every day to do this. That is the bravest thing I think I've ever seen in my life because they risk it every single day. So the pain is how am I going to survive without that thing, which does look like a lot of recovery, right? How am I going to do this? How am I going to show up without this thing in the world? Then there's a huge fear of, will I like myself? Will I know myself? Who am I without this? So for adults, it's a massive shift in identity. And that can be really scary because we might have someone that's 60 years old and that's been her life for the past 45 plus years. And who am I without that? Mm. Mm. Yeah. So the consequences I would assume could be medical, 
right? They might be having problems with a medical diagnosis or weight or whatever it might be. You guys might be able to fill in those blanks. It can probably be psychological, I would imagine, right? Where they're struggling with self-esteem or anxiety and depression, whatever, maybe even impulsivity in a lot of ways. Are there any other consequences that you guys would add to that? I'm, just, I'm trying to um, get my arms around what your patients look like and what they're walking in with. Do you want to start? They are walking in with um, just a multitude of problems and baggage and struggles. There's the medical side of it where they may have their labs are bad. They're, they may have heart issues. They may have problems with their liver, kidneys. Um, definitely their brain is offline because they're malnourished. Um, and then even once they start eating again, then there's a multitude of other GI problems that come up and discomfort with their body and lots of issues with digesting as their, ba as their body readjusts. Um, and in addition to that, they're doing all of this emotional work. Um, and they're conquering their biggest fear by having, you know, food in their body for, you know, a consistent, consistently throughout the day. Mm. Um, we always say it's not about the food. Yes. Oh, I'm just, I'm, I'm also thinking about how, so what role does social media play in all of this? Oh, you're skipping ahead I'm on your own podcast. <laughs> well, um, keep going. So, I, you yes. Know. Well, and they put their life on hold. So whether yeah. it's school or college or job or, yeah. you know, they're missing seeing their child go to prom, yeah. there's loss. And we always say it's, you know, a grief and loss process because they're grieving what the eating disorder took from them. They're grieving losing the eating disorder and they're grieving currently what they're missing out on yeah. in their life. Um, social media, oh, that's a whole different podcast, but we can definitely address it. Well, it's, I just think that our relationship with food has changed a lot. And we have, I'm not an expert in eating disorders, right? Um, not an expert in much, but what I'd say is, we have visibility on what we look like and how we compare that, how we compare our insides to everybody's outsides, arguably more so than we ever have before, just access to these platforms where I'm able to see, you know, such and such person is getting engaged mm -hmm. or such and such person has X, Y, or Z that I might or might not be placing value on that I might or might not have in my own life. And it can, I know that the people that are seeking Cumberland Heights as a as a part of their solution for uh, treatment from addiction, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. And I would imagine that over the last 15 years, as our lives have changed with these digital tools, that you guys might have seen a more acute presentation of these patients or um, they might be struggling in a way that perhaps they hadn't because of their perceived relationship with society at large. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Mm -hmm. Do you want to start with an adolescent perspective and then I can talk about adults? Sure. Um, social media is definitely used for comparison for adolescents of what is someone wearing? What products are they using? What do they look like? Um, what, how do they look in a bathing suit for girls, especially with spring break? And then instantly being able to look at that picture and compare themselves in a mirror at home or to take their own picture and compare the pictures side by side. Um and it's devastating because a person with an eating disorder does not see their body correctly. They see it through a very distorted lens. So it doesn't matter what that person looks like. That person is going to look 100 times better to the person with an eating disorder, um, no matter what you tell them. And then there is the social media of like 
trying to keep up with the Joneses of they're doing this activity and they're doing this activity and life seems great and wonderful because you're only posting what's good on social media and you never post what's bad. But then when I've recently been speaking to schools, there's now this trend on social media to post about mental health issues and it's glorified. And it makes it look like it's alluring and fun and exciting. And who can be the sickest person? Oh, which interesting. Is ex- yes, which is extremely dangerous with eating disorders because they're so competitive with each other. They want to have the biggest war story. They want to be the sickest person in the room. They are. Not, they should not be in treatment because they're not the sickest person in there. So then now they're also comparing other people's mental health issues. And are they as sick as I am? Or what can I do to be sicker with them? And then to add another more fuel to the social media fire, there are social media sites that teach you how to have an eating disorder better. They're pro-eating disorder and anti-recovery. So they give them, yes, I know, tips and tricks on how to fake your weight or how to get out of treatment or what to tell your parents about this treatment center is bad so that you don't have to go or how to hide your food or how to like purge where nobody can hear you and in secret. And it's tip after tip after tip. And if you go to them, then they are also talking about their eating disorder. They're posting their weight. They're posting their height, their BMI. They're posting posting pictures of themselves. Um, Yeah, that's not good. No, it's terrible. That's really, really harmful. Claire, before you comment on that, I'm curious, what's the core? Um, Where does that come from, that desire to be – identified as the sickest person in the room, like what drives that in y'all's clinical experience? Well, have you experienced that in a 12-step meeting? Like who's the worst? Or, I mean, I saw it in substance abuse treatment too. Like the new kid would come in and they just smoked weed and like the junkies are like, get out of here, bro. Like, what is this? So to me, it's this, oh, I'm finally worthy. Mm. So if I wasn't worthy being well and good, the good kid, the good student... Well, I'll be worthy enough in this disease. Right. Somebody see me. Like, to me, that's the wounding. Please, somebody sit with me in this and tell me that I'm actually okay, worthy of love and belonging. That's what belonging, community, identification, being seen, all of those things. So how do y'all's programs, I I would assume that given that your observation and sort of what's underneath all of those behaviors or maybe a part of it, uh, how do y'all meet those needs? for somebody that might be struggling with an eating disorder? Like how how do you try to maybe fill in those gaps? I think what we do the best, I don't mean best ever, but we are what we are so good at is seeing the humanity is why I love this program. And I was gratefully raised up in programs that were similar. Um, And when I say we see the humanity in people, so we eat lunch with our clients. Most of us, I mean, there's always at least a therapist, a dietitian, and it's not to check a box. I'm like, we were there, insurance. It's because we want to. And so we look around, who has their head down? Whose shoulders are slumped? Do I see, is somebody tearful? Okay, did they eat fast and now they look totally dissociated because that happens? Are they totally avoiding touching the pickles on their plate or whatever it is? And then I get to sit down with them and say, can I put my hand on your back? Hey, can you tell me a little bit about what's going on? And no matter what they say, I get to remain so loving and neutral because I might be the first person that said it was okay for exactly where they are. So as a mother, I know if my kids are struggling, it is in my biology to make it better. 
So we see that in eating disorder. We see that in substance abuse. Parent and or spouse or uncle down the street is going to do whatever they can to save this person and help this person. So that means they probably haven't sat in the lowest discomfort. Mom's going to be like, just eat the rice aroni, hon. Mm. You know, instead of what's that like? What's that bringing up? Do you want to step? Why don't we take a breath? Let's take a walk and we'll come back to this. There's no rush. Right. So that's how we show up. That was one tiny example of you eat lunch with somebody. Right. Is there a strong uh, community of recovery in Birmingham surrounding disordered eating? There's n- that doesn't exist yeah. in the world. Yeah. So I talked about this yesterday when we were presenting. You see T-shirts that are like, mommy needs her wine. (laughs) Okay. But you don't (laughs) see like, mommy struggled with an eating disorder and would love a friend. You know, like we don't see the truth. We make jokes of the pain. And so I despise those T-shirts. I don't like T-shirts that say running is my therapy. I don't like any of that Mm. because to me, that's a mask for what's really going on. So in the recovery community, there's sober tailgates, right? Um, Sober dance parties, sober set breaks at live music. Like we are surrounded with sober is almost cool. I was just about to say it's cool. It's hip now. Even if you don't identify is having substance use disorder, alcoholic, whatever, a lot of people are actually realizing alcohol is not sitting great with them. So they're getting, they're drinking kombucha instead of a gin and tonic. So there is a huge normalization of it. I haven't seen it in the United States for eating disorders. And that's even shown with the 2% of us that say we treat it, even that small. Where do we go? How do we support that? It is such a shame-filled disorder that I just don't think we're there yet where it's like, oh, I went to such and such meeting and and we're having a, a 70s dance party. Like, I just haven't seen it. We don't like to talk about it or even acknowledge it. Even when I tell people what I do, I get a, oh, that's interesting. Or they'll point to their stomach and be like, where can I get myself one of those? And if I challenge that or push that a little, wow. like, you really don't want one. It's actually pure torture. And yeah. the girls and the women I work with, it's hard every single day as they're working on this. And they laugh and they blow it, you know, they blow it off or they make some sort of another joke about eating disorders. They don't get it. They don't want to get it. And I don't know why, other than the fact at some point in time, we all struggle with, you know, our appearance and we struggle with like maybe buying into the diet culture. And you just don't want to look at that side of yourself or acknowledge that maybe someone in your life is struggling or um, you just write it off as normal of, oh, they just happen to eat very little or they're just a picky eater. They're a big exerciser. Um, This part of mental health, while we've come a long way in mental health, eating disorders have a really long way to go and people Mm. buying into them. Mm. Okay, I have a really progressive question to ask (laughs) y'all. Might be a little controversial, but... Let's go for it. Are eating disorders or disordered eating a manifestation of the same disease we call addiction? Just caveat. That is in no way eliminating or minimizing the um, uniqueness of that pathology or of that clinical presentation. That's not what I mean. But when I hear you guys talking about disordered eating, I hear a lot of the same elements Mm -hmm. about self-care, about self-esteem, community, um, a purpose-filled life that 
addiction can strip away from you over a period of time, that's really just about management and control of emotions and pain. So, would you want to go first? Go first. I heard your breath. Um, So, coming from substance abuse, like, what I'm about to say is my belief. Sure. And so... The similarities are astounding. The families look the same, the denial, the codependency, Mm. all of that is a mirror image, mirror image. And instead of letting little Johnny smoke weed in the basement because it's easier than blah, blah, it's we're going to let Susie just keep eating this way um, because she needs to finish AP chemistry and cheerleading to put on her college. It's a phase. So lots of similarities. Don't grow out of it. Yes. Um, the presentation and treatment takes longer. So if I'm referring someone into residential treatment for substance use, my thought is 45, 60 days res, let's try to get them sober living. I'm aiming for nine to 12 months in some sort of structured environment. Eating disorders is two to five years of like hard core getting better. Why do y'all think that is? You have to have food. You have to get better and have a normal relationship with food and your body. You don't have to have substances. Are you sure? You don't have to have heroin? You don't have to have heroin. You're going to be great. Right. I mean, it makes absolute 100% sense. You know, like your relationship with drugs and alcohol, often a lot of our most efficacious treatments, you know, are based in abstinence, right? So we're going to remove your presence with such substance and then we're going to start working on the behaviors and the belief structures that support your lifestyle and kind of move you from there. The other thing mm-hmm. that might be different too that I'm just struck with is the community. Like you were mentioning, Claire, there's you, you guys are suggesting there's no community, if not very small, highly stigmatized. But recovery meetings like in Nashville tonight, we could probably go to 10 if we wanted to. Mm-hmm. And they might or might not be like standing room only with old people, with young people from all all wow. different shapes and sizes, right? Um, there's probably not a lot, even in a, a metropolitan area like Nashville, of eating disorder support groups that you can find. So it's just pretty fascinating to me. It, it's heartbreaking it's, and fascinating. Yeah, it is. It's did it's you want sad. to add anything? It's really unfortunate. Yeah, it's absolutely unfortunate. I, I think that, um, you know, I asked that question for a reason. So when I was in graduate school, um, for a year, I worked for um, a professor who did research on disorder eating, which was, you know, they defined it as, you know, um, a relationship with food that's high in salt, fat, and sugar. <laughs> So when I began working on that on that on that graduate, and you might correct me or, or whatever, but when we started working on that on that team, I was like, oh, well, I classify because after I work a twelve hour shift, and I'm not trying to um, be disrespectful to disorder eating at all. This is awesome. But like, <clears throat> you know, when I was I went through a twelve hour day, you know, teaching, doing research, whatever in graduate school, like we do, you know, uh, I would go and was like, you know, I wasn't craving a salad. I was craving like bread, you know, Mm -hmm. like I would like, like, let me get a calzone and go home and like eat by myself. And like, it was in some ways a coping mechanism for the stress that I was experiencing. Right. And I don't like when we're stressed, just, just my experience again, I don't crave cold. I don't want a green juice. Mm -mm. I don't want a green juice either. You know, like I'm here to party, like, let's go let's go have a meal, right? Where I can feel really satiated. My body can feel really full. 
Right. And so that that journey of recovery for somebody that has an eating disorder is no doubt lifelong and absolutely um, probably in a lot of ways much, much, much more intensive. And so the a huge shift, and then I want to talk about wanting in calzone because that's super normal. Sure. Um, Thank you. So in you know, substance use recovery, we're like, this is lifelong. Like you've got the gene, this is it for you. Eating disorders and not all eating disorders, eating disorder facilities believe this, but for us, we believe full recovery is possible. So Katie's example of she's going with a fully recovered person to eat cheeseburgers tonight. That's you would never go find a fully recovered drug addict and be like, we're gonna smoke a joint. This is awesome that we're done with this right. part of our life. Right. So huge difference there. And then I think what you're actually describing is you use your mind and body for these huge long days. And you craved something that was like soothing and filling. So we'd actually call that intuitive eating. And and that's the end goal is do I know my body well enough to know what it wants and how much? That doesn't mean accidentally I skipped a meal, I got too busy, or sometimes I overeat because I was super hungry or that fried chicken was just super good. You know, that happens in intuitive eating, but we don't think about it. It was like, whoo, I'm full, on to the next, okay? So in intuitive eating, in its simplest form, I trust my body, what it wants, what it needs, and if that's a calzone and no salad or green juice, cool. And I don't have any negative thoughts associated to it. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas somebody who might be experiencing eating disorder has that negative relationship, right? Whether that's restriction or binging, just yeah. two symptoms or behaviors, right? And so it's it's much more of maybe a, an intentional choice. Is that what you're suggesting? For sure. Yeah. yeah. As opposed to intuitive eating. That's right. Yeah. So that becomes really consuming. So at our facility, um, we have a chef. Chef Robert, he's amazing. Shout out, Chef Robert. We love you, Robert. Um, If you walked in, you would be really excited about the food. Like, it is well-rounded, all the food groups. Like, you're going to see beautiful colors, really fresh ingredients, and some could label it as, like, some would get crazy and say healthy, okay? Sure. However, we expose our clients to all kinds of food. So it's not all, and it's not like grilled, I'm not talking like 90s healthy grilled chicken on lettuce with low-fat dressing. That's not what I mean. Like we might have steak or chicken, uh, Brussels sprouts, and roasted potatoes. Like you're getting everything. Um, And then we give clients opportunities for a challenge, Um, A challenge, this was a huge learning curve for me, a challenge might be a turkey wrap because they can't see the ingredients and that's frightening. Where in like a normal eating mindset, we're like, yeah, turkey wrap, cool. And baked lays, like that might even be considered like a really safe food for other people. Um, Hmm. But so one day we had, um, this was recently and I was eating lunch and I was pumped about it because it was very childhood to me. There was hot dogs uh, sorry, hot dogs, fries, baked beans, and one other food. Were you there this Tater tots. Tater tots. <laughs> Woo. And onion um, rings. It was a big day, okay? It was a big day. Right. Um, and it was a very quiet lunch because um, sometimes we'll play games for distraction. It was really quiet. And then we do a group called Food and Feelings. And the women have the opportunity to give a number to their fullness because they're trying to recognize cues again because those have been lost. Um, And then they talk about the feelings that come up. And there were some massive, massive 
feelings around that. It was all brown. Why wouldn't y'all have at least mm. served fruit? So there was some anger. There was some like devastation. There was one woman that was like, I already have my compensating behaviors, compensatory behaviors set up for later. I mean, she owned it. She's like, I won't have carbs the rest of the day. So I listen, step one, sit with them in it. And then I was like, okay, so that was one time, and I want you to imagine a grocery store conveyor belt. And every time that meal comes in your head, you're going to put it on, and it's going to go away. And it, you only might have to do that one time, or you might do it 100 times today. But it's giving space. That's really hard. I put it on. See you later. So it's teaching them that three meals a day, seven days a week, are not going to be a plate of brown food. But if they have a child and they go eat at the school cafeteria, you're going to get a plate of brown food for sure. Sure, And right. you want to be able to sit there, tolerate brown food, eat with your precious kiddo in second grade, and then move on with your life. Right, right. I don't know how I got on the brown food tangent, but that's what – oh, from your calzone. Yeah. So it's learning to tolerate something that our society deems as bad, unhealthy, or disordered. Right. Why, right. Why do, riding the wave. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right? That's Letting right. a thought enter in your mind. Right. Just like we teach our patients a little bit, recognizing this is just a thought. I'm going to ride it out. Right. Some might describe that as playing the tape out in mm -hmm. some other ways. Mm -hmm. You guys are describing something else that I'm picking up on too, and that's control. Right. Mm -hmm. So the, the turkey wrap was a fascinating example of I need to know what's in my meal as a right. function of the ingredients or as a function of the, uh, the portions. So, in y'all's experience, you know, what what role does control have with disordered eating, which automatically gets my mind thinking about trauma? Mm -hmm. Can y'all speak to that? Yeah. You start with control and then I'll trauma. I can start with up. control. So with adolescents, well, with people in, ge in general with eating disorders, they can probably calculate the calories in every single food. So if they can't see something, they don't know yeah. how many calories are in that wrap because they don't know if there's mayo. They don't know if it's hummus. They don't know if it's cucumbers, lettuce, sprouts, whatever it is in there. That's destroyed their day. That's destroyed their calorie counting, um, that behavior. For adolescents, I think a lot of times when something's wrapped or something's hidden or they don't know the ingredients, it comes from not maybe a past trauma but a more current trauma of a parent sneaking an extra butter, extra oil mm. into their food for them to gain weight so they don't really trust the system. And that's not what we do. Um, they know on their menu what's in the turkey wrap. They just forget mm. um, because they're anxious and they're upset. Um, and yeah, as far as an eating disorder just being about control, it's an aspect of it. But there's so many other multiple things as well besides control that go into it. Um, at the end of the day, you can probably argue that everything is about control. Mm -hmm. But for each individual, you kind of have to look at, is it a traumatic event? Is it control? Is it this desire for perfectionism? Is it just simply a diet gone wrong? Is it because mom's eaten this way her entire life and you've learned how to eat this way your entire life? Mom and dad just happened to think it was a problem. Mm. Or the pediatrician happened to think that it was a problem and that's why you're here. Mm. Um Interesting. Wait, real quick. Will you talk more about diet gone wrong? Because I think that's super important for people to understand. Yes. A lot of times what we will see with, with younger women and with adolescents is they pick up, probably on social media, um, a trend diet. So whether it's a paleo, whether it's keto, or whether it's like, I'm going to knock out all carbs, and they do it for a while. Naturally, their body loses a little bit of weight. 
um, and they get all these compliments. And socially, usually where they also are, it's they're exposed to more people, there's more activities, but they attribute their newfound popularity or being in these clubs or getting these organizations or getting these growth these good grades with the weight loss, because that's just what happened. I've lost a little bit of weight and all these good things happen. Wow. What if I lose more weight? And then they continue to lose more weight. And then it's like, wow, I'm still getting all these things. They continue to lose more weight. So they're not seeing um, where the eating disorder is hurting them. And sooner or later, it's a full-blown eating disorder. They're eating, you know, 500 calories a day. They're exercising in their room for 45 minutes to an hour before school, after school, and getting up in the middle of the night and doing it. And it becomes habitual. Mm. And it becomes a problem, but they're still contributing to, like, my life is great and wonderful and everything is fine because I'm skinny, because I've lost this weight. Right. Um, And that's kind of where it's, yes, a diet going wrong. And sometimes you unpack there are all these other problems that came along with it. And sometimes it really is that's just happened when you blossomed and grew and um, became more confident naturally and the eating disorder really had nothing to do with it. Right. Right. One of the things I'm thinking about is um, how addiction treatment has changed. And I want to kind of loop this into eating disorder treatment, kind of what y'all are suggesting and the change process and recovery for somebody who has an eating disorder. But, you know, in addiction treatment over the last 15 years, you know, our programs have gotten a lot more responsive and reflexive to what we all call trauma-informed care, right? That's essentially um, can be distilled into the idea that we're going to pay a little bit closer attention to some of the context, some of the narrative of your life, sort of like a systems approach in some ways that not necessarily will explain addiction away. That's not the goal but will give us more of a framework to identify where the pain comes from. So let me give you an example. So we have a young, we, we, we treat all ages at Cumberland Heights, right? We have an adolescent male program um, at, as young as 14. And then of course our traditional programs, you know, tr- treat people that are well into their eighties. And when somebody comes through our program and they're a young person, they might be 18 years old, 19 years old, and they've been using opioids every day that ends in Y, you know, there's something going on there. So what I mean is it's not that somebody wakes up one day and says, I'm going to start smoking pot. And then because of that, all of a sudden I'm going to graduate to this, that, and also opioids. It's a lifestyle of choices that kind of Mm -hmm. sort of like bedrock builds on top of itself, but there always is pain. There's, there's never not pain for a 20 year old or a 16-year-old young woman or a 30-year-old struggling with an eating disorder, there's something that's gone on. And it's not going to – we're long aware of the nature of our problems before we're willing to do anything about them. So just because I know that I've experienced some trauma when I was 10 with my parents or whoever it was on whatever the thing might be, that's not going to make my symptoms of my eating disorder or addiction go away. Right? That's right. But that familiarity, that excavation that often happens in addiction recovery through a step working process or a community doesn't have to be, they're not mutually exclusive. So I'm curious about sort of the recovery frameworks laid on top of what, how, how we think about addiction that might best equip somebody with an eating disorder to change, right? Because the food doesn't change, right? It's our relationship with food and ourselves, most of the time, I would imagine. 
So if you had a client with addiction and a client with an eating disorder do like a life map or right there, yep. you know, we call it an auto and treatment. Uh-huh. Up until the use started or the eating disorder started, I think you'd see a ton of similarities in the type of trauma you'd see. And then the manifestation looks different. So it goes the ED route. It goes the addiction route. Genetics probably play a role in that. Family modeling plays a role in that. A- a- access to drugs, alcohol, you know, whatever it is, that that all would play a role. Yeah. And so to me, the treatment outside of the food and dietary aspect, which is massive, we spend a lot of time with food and dietary, outside of that, you're going to see almost identical models of treatment. So we're doing the same types of trauma work. We're doing a ton of DBT, putting that thought on the conveyor belt, letting it go. We're teaching a lot of um, how do I regulate my nervous system? I'm obviously in survival mode for a reason. How do I get back in to thrive? So all of that will look incredibly similar, except then we're doing exposure therapy to Sour Patch Kids. You know, we have to add that added layer where in the substance abuse world, it's let's get you invested in a 12-step community, go that way. So one thing I wanted to mention, and then Katie, please add to the treatment model if you want, but... um, A lot of care around a patient with an eating disorder is teaching them that there's not, in fact, a mountain lion walking into the dining room at that moment or Mm -hmm. the group room. So what I mean by that is all of us, all of our trauma, if you have trauma, when it is touched, when it is triggered, we go outside of our window of tolerance. That's when we're calm and thriving and feeling pretty good. We're content. We recognize our feelings. It doesn't mean we don't have them. We just kind of stay in that range of being aware and present. When our t- trauma is tapped into, could be the turkey wrap, okay? Could be a fight with a husband, any of it. That's right. We go. We can go up into that hyper aroused state, that like hyper vigilant. I'm really scared. That's when a client's maybe gonna like get real feisty with you about the turkey wrap. You know, they might they're gonna get chatter. Or we go down into the hypo aroused state. That's my head down client. That's my the slow tears. I'm not gonna talk to someone. So my hope in that moment is so tiny. When I see a client outside of Thrive, which is often because their window of tolerance is so teeny, teeny, tiny. Um, my ho- I'll even tell them, I'm like, hey, sister, a mountain lion didn't walk in. We are not actually critically in danger right now, but your body is telling you that you are. How do you tell your body that a mountain lion isn't in here? And it's pretty crazy how easy that is to do. Um, stand up, feel your feet on the ground, breathe, positive self-talk, tell somebody else, pray about it. All of that's so similar. This is all we have to do. How do I get back into this? Now, I might only stay for five minutes, and I might have to do it again. But it's getting that window of tolerance open for longer and for bigger periods of time. I can tolerate more. They put Not only did they put a turkey wrap, I can't see the ingredients, but they also put my Sprite in an opaque cup, and I'm not sure what else in mm, there. Mm. But I tolerated it today. It's so fascinating because in a lot of ways, I feel like y'all are doing um, – more advanced addiction work than happens in residential programs. Cool. Yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah that's awesome. Because <laughs> here's what I mean. Just just like, you know, when, when we're stabilizing somebody, you know, medically and psychologically for addiction treatment in a residential care setting, like often we're doing just that and we're introducing them to a new lifestyle and we're equipping them with the resources um, associated with long-term recovery that might be sort of housing, education, 
um, wellness, along with a community that they can use. And really, a lot of people call it stage two recovery, right? Like once you stabilize your relationship or your abstinence away from heroin or Oxycontin or whatever it might be, you know, then we're inviting you into a lifelong program of recovery where hopefully you'll be continuing to ask really difficult questions in a community and your community right. is able to say, you should maybe think about your relationship with X, Y, and Z that manifests in these different behaviors that seemingly have nothing to do with addiction in terms of use, right? But that are outside. When you, when you talked about the thrive window, that are outside of that thrive window right. that somebody might experience. So y'all don't have that luxury of community and you don't have the luxury of abstinence. So y'all are jumping in some ways to stage two mm-hmm. work out of the gate. So just how brave your clients must be. Right. Right. And I think because we don't have community, we focus so much on like what out in the community can you connect to that feels bigger and better and more alluring and more exciting to this. And let's go and do it. And whether we go and do it with them. So if it's like going to the zoo, we may take a client to the zoo or walk in the botanical gardens or go ahead and have fun with your friends. And I know food's involved with your friends, but let's make a plan for you to eat before or after you spend time with your friends because what's important right now is that relationship with your friends because it's a good, solid, healthy relationship. Um, And I think we have to get really creative with the community out there. And a lot of time, the community doesn't understand someone in recovery for an eating disorder because they don't have an issue with the food. And to them, it's like, why can't they just eat the pizza and the cheeseburger and move on with it? Don't think about it. And go and don't think about it because that's what I do. What's the big deal? Just eat it. Um, They get that with their families. They get it with their friends. And um, so as hard as it is, sometimes it is removing the food from the social situation, letting them have the social situation, and then adding the food back slowly. So what that looks like is just because they successfully do pizza with us at lunch doesn't mean that they can successfully or they're ready to do pizza at home or they're ready to do pizza with their friends. Mm. Um, We would slowly build back up into that. It seems Um, so very isolating for somebody in recovery from an eating disorder. I was going to ask, like, do you guys have a robust alumni kind of community that these individuals and the families, we haven't talked a lot about family, but I would imagine that's a whole other sort of paradigm that's helpful. And then, you know, we talked about the negative components of social media, but I also know sometimes there are healthy communities Mm -hmm. to access, Mm -hmm. right, related to addiction or cancer treatment or disordered eating or eating disorders. Do any of your clients have experience with that? Those were a lot, that was a lot of questions. <laughs> Sorry. The, um, as far as alums, we um, occasionally we would have, back in the day pre-COVID, we would have alums come in yeah. and speak and tell their experience. Um, I think we're now at a point where we can probably start inviting some alums back and doing more face-to-face with alums. Uh, I always give parents the number of someone that's been through our program so that, you know, they can talk. And it's usually somebody that lives in and around their community so they know the community pressures plus how to balance that with um, the eating disorder so we can build, we can help that way. As far as our dietitians do have some places where they can go and you know, log their meals and get some aspiring quotes and affirmations throughout it. 
And some of them have found some recovery communities. But for adolescents, I really encourage them to take a break from social media because it is so toxic. Um, yeah. And they're not, they don't have the discipline yet to do that. The eating disorder is so seductive and so alluring that until they're ready to actually use a community like that, they're still going to be drawn to the toxic stuff. They're going to be drawn to the negativity. Um, they go home at night, yeah. so we have no control of them. Um, and I think for adults, as far as social media, I mean, it's even a struggle for me, and I do not suffer from an eating disorder. And it's not about the body image for me. It's about that, like, Jane from high school got a better house, you know? I right. mean, it, and I'll notice some of that. Yep. So you mentioned how isolating an eating disorder is. That's the bigger part of social media that concerns me is I can rabbit hole on TikTok, Instagram, whatever, and further disconnect from body. And so what I invite adult women to do, because they are using it differently. If you're 30 plus, you're using social media differently than maybe a 20 and younger person. It was just is a different time in social media. And so I ask, it's not about deleting it or whatever, but it's before you pick up that screen, will you tell me why? Don't I mean, meaning like, can you tell me why? Do you need to set a timer? Let's just be intentional about it. If it's triggering, tell somebody. But I really do think the exposure to all shapes and sizes is really positive. If that's how you keep up with other people, I think that can be really positive. But as long as they are aware, have I cut myself off again from my neck down? just to be on social media. And if I did, did I need to cut my, my head off for a minute and just detach? Is that okay? So because it's isolating, because it's a disease where you just totally dissociate, if you're aware of that, like, let's be mindful, let's be intentional. Eating disorders too, not only is the treatment isolating, but someone with an eating disorder has isolated themselves in order to keep the eating disorder. Um, they've detached from activities, they've detached from family, they've detached from friends, and are completely, as they think, content alone in their room with their eating disorder. The eating disorder is the best friend. The eating disorder is the spouse and the family member. Um, so they come into treatment isolated and I've noticed, especially with a lot of adolescents, one thing that really kind of sets this emotion is a change in friend group. It's eighth grade girls can be really cruel and really mean, and they've gone off and joined the popular crowd, or they all have boyfriends, and all of a sudden, you're left alone. You don't have any friends. But this eating disorder has become a great friend and a great distraction. So in terms of resources, because I think it's worth, it's definitely worthy of mentioning for Anyone that might be listening to this in the northern Alabama area or middle Tennessee or, or what have you, especially around Birmingham, right, where a Center for Eating Disorders is, you know, um, what might your organization provide or what might y'all suggest by way of resources for families or individuals sort of trying to maybe begin to investigate their relationship with an eating disorder? So... We offer assessments for anybody, not just females. Male, female, doesn't matter your age. Well, 13 and above, it does matter. I've done 10. She's done 10. Okay. okay. Um, that's a great place to start, even if it's not with us, if another treatment center. And those are in person? 
or Zoom if or you're Zoom. in, you know, Idaho or something. Um, that way you've gotten things out on paper and someone from a, with a clinical eye and or dietary eye can say, hey, this is what we're thinking. These are the resources in your area or are we a good fit for you? So I always say start talking about it. If you're in therapy, and this is for if clinicians are listening to this, like know where your limits are. So this is a team process. So if someone is in therapy and eating disorders, starting to talk about it, making sure that there's a dietitian on board, um, making sure the family's getting support, making sure a doctor's on board or lab's good. So this is like a big safety concern too. So I would say getting a free assessment, what's my next step, or making sure all the players are ready to make sure that this patient is incredibly supported. And then kind of the third and like more benign is we're trying to talk about it more. Like this is so wonderful that y'all are willing to sit down. It is so uncomfortable for most people to talk about eating disorders. So Katie and I are doing a book club. We're going to do it on Zoom this summer too. Like getting people to talk about their own discomfort in their body. Are you raising kids? Is that hard to talk about? I have a nine-year-old daughter that's already telling me, am I skinny enough? That's crazy to me because I don't talk about that stuff. I don't talk about that stuff at all. So really being able to discuss this and then I'll zip it after this, but encouraging clinicians and therapists, don't be so scared. Don't be so scared of this. You can learn how to do exposure to an ego waffle. Like it Mm -hmm. isn't rocket science. It is humanity and sitting with them. And at the end of the day, these are people with a really deep wound and therapists. We know how to do it. We know how to take care of it. I appreciate you saying that because the same thing happens with addiction, right? So it's actually, you know, usually in your graduate program, you have to opt into the addiction course. And eating disorders might be a footnote or a couple slides in one lecture for one class, right? So it's even more, what message are we sending in our training programs, right? That eating disorders is something that's too complex for a basic trained clinician that's outside of my scope. So what ends up happening is we refer that out to the person who identifies as personally equipped or specialist, just like with addiction, it tends to be the person in recovery that's in the training program. And that is a real shame because a lot of people are suffering. And I think you're exactly right. You know, if you're a clinician, equip yourself in that community, maybe connect with one of y'all, right? And learn more about it. Yep. And it takes a village. Yeah. So if you're working with someone with an eating disorder as a therapist, you shouldn't just be working as a therapist. There needs to be a dietitian involved. And there needs to be a doctor involved. And both of them need to be versed in in eating disorders and have sensitivity around it. Um, dietitians, it needs to be a dietitian and not a nutritionist. The dietitian, yes, is um, a registered dietitian with eating disorder experience that lends more towards intuitive eating. The, the physician needs to be so sensitive to things about weight and body size and vitals and what they tell what they tell their patient um i can't tell and they need to understand how dark eating disorders are and how serious eating disorders are and i mean we've had pediatricians just say this kid went away to college they just had a really hard time the mom just needs to go home and feed them and that's that's not the case there's way more to it 
So it's opening up the conversation that it can't just be about, it can't just be therapists talking about a mental health issue. It's got to be everyone. It's got to be coaches. It's got to be professors. It's got to be people in the workforce that you have to understand that someone with an eating disorder is going to come into your life at some point or time. They're growing at a rapid rate. And what are you going to do to educate yourself and to be comfortable with uncomfortable conversations about it? And as well as making that person feel comfortable and they come to you to support, how do you love them and support them at the same time, but also kind of set that bar and push them when needed? Can I say one more thing? Please. I'm sorry. Um, 35% of women in treatment for substance use disorder have an eating disorder. And in my experience in substance abuse treatment, I mean, I was, I'm so guilty of it. Eating disorder pops up and I'm like, okay, so where do they go? We have to get them out of here. I can't do it. Mm -hmm. And so I would put it to inpatient residential treatment centers, treating substance abuse, like send your clinician somewhere, get them trained, get them an understanding. Do you have a contract dietitian you can bring in? Because if realistically, let's even just lower the number, 20% of your women are struggling, have somebody, like we can do better in substance abuse. And you know what? Eating disorder can do better with that. So like we've partnered mm -hmm. up with a sober living in town so they can live in sober living, be supported in a 12 step community, come to us during the day. Cause we're realizing you have to have both at the same time. Like let's do this thing. And so I would encourage anyone treating substance abuse, like open your eyes it is right in front of you. And we have to do this better for these women. Yeah. And it's not just women too, right? You're right. I said, yeah. when I said no, it, no, 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 I, was I wasn't. Like, no, no. I mean, it's, it's, more patients than we assume yes 100% are affected by disordered eating broadly period full stop and like you just mentioned the patients that are identifying as the primary issue being disordered eating or eating disorder probably also have experience and manifestations of well classic substance use disorder right and so it really needs to be a comprehensive collaborative environment and you're you're exactly right. It's part of the reason why we invited y'all out yesterday to do a training and to what we had a, over a hundred people show up for that training, which was good. I heard really great things about it. Thank y'all. You're welcome for driving for up here. Us. We enjoyed it. We and and you know, I'll just say anything we can do to support y'all in Birmingham and vice versa, like we would really love to do, you know, whether that's an event or some kind of marketing brand awareness for a center yeah. for eating disorders, which I don't want to forget this, but what's your website? So if somebody wants to check out a Center for Eating Disorders. A Center for Eating Disorders dot com. Okay. <laughs> and then we have an Instagram. It's A-C-E-D Recover. A-C-E-D Recover. Mm -hmm. okay, great. So we should have told you this on the front end. We call it ACID. Yeah. That's like our name for short. We work at ACID. We're ACID people. It's, so you don't have to have the whole mouthful. Got it. ACID. Yeah. yeah. Well, probably thanks would have been again. helpful in the beginning. <laughs> no, thank you all. <laughs> thanks for everything that you do. I'm really excited that y'all were here and, um, yeah, we need to have you on this show again. We'll sure. do it. Yeah, we'll do it. Thank you so much. That's it. Thank you all.